Welcome to Season 2 of the Mindful Literacy Podcast with your host, Dr. Jessica Bennett. Our mission is to provide one-on-one and small group literacy tutoring to children with dyslexia or who are at risk for reading failure. One of the driving forces behind creating Mindful Literacy Columbus was a social justice focus. We want to make needed education services accessible to all. The board is in the process of researching social determinants of health, such as family income, access to community-based resources, social support, language and literacy, and access to information. It is our vision to create a center where children can have access to high-quality tutoring, irrespective of family income. In our mind's eye, this center would also be a place where adults can study our written language together and where parents can find support. Listener support is paramount to how much we are able to support kids in our community. Thank you so much for your support. Here are three ways you can get involved with Mindful Literacy Columbus. You can share this podcast and you can like and follow Mindful Literacy Columbus on Facebook and Instagram. Pause this podcast right now and go like and follow before you forget. Our Facebook is mindful.literacy.columbus. Our Instagram is mindful.literacy.cbus. Make sure to share posts to your feed and tag your friends. You can also volunteer. There are four opportunities to volunteer with Mindful Literacy Columbus. Even if you don't live in Columbus, first, you could join the Grant Writers Guild. Writers are needed. Second, you can join our summer camp in August. Counselors are needed. Third, we need volunteers for our first annual conference for kids and grown-ups. Even coordinators are needed. This event will be held in August. Finally, you can volunteer to be a mentor and editor for Beehive Press. We especially need high school and college-age volunteers who enjoy studying English or graphic design. If you would like more information about volunteering, please send us a message on Facebook or Instagram. You can also email our Director of Impact at Megan, that is M-E-G-H-A-N, at mindfulliteracypractice.org. Thanks again for your support. And we hope you enjoy this episode of the Mindful Literacy Podcast. Julianne Ash is a board-certified educational therapist. She received her Master of Science degree from St. Cloud State University, mainly focusing on the areas of learning disabilities, behavioral emotional disorders, and mild to moderate cognitive impairment with a specialization in autism. An educator with more than 45 years of experience in middle school, high school, and special education and educational therapy, Julianne's primary focus is on helping individuals remove learning roadblocks and achieve their personal goals for success. Our conversation focused on executive functioning strategies that teachers can use to help students with anxiety and learning. Enjoy this conversation with Julianne. Hi, Julianne. Welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. Hi, Jessica. I'm really glad to be here today and excited that we would have a chance to talk. Me too. I had the pleasure of meeting you back in December. Uh, Some mutual colleagues introduced us and I just thought, whoa, I need to have you on the podcast because you are such a wealth of knowledge. Oh, thank you. And it's fun to really collaborate with people and hear other people's stories. And I am so glad that you invited me to share what we do. Yeah. So the first thing that really caught my attention when I met you is that you're a board certified educational therapist. And being an intervention specialist in the field for almost 16 years, I didn't know what that was. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from you what is a board-certified educational therapist? Well, I'm board-certified, which is our top uh, level, but an educational therapist works with 
the psychosocial or the psycho-emotional aspects of learning. So what we do is we help kids come in and when someone comes to us, we have them look at how their brain likes to bring in information, sort it out, store it, retrieve it, and apply it. So when we're working with students, we're, we're explaining to them, this is cool how your brain works, and this is also where you're really good at things. Because too often, the students that we see are not focused on their strengths, they're focused on the things they can't do. Board educational therapy, oops, that's a little bobble there. Educational therapy is a relatively new discipline. As a matter of fact, Dorothy Ungeleiter, our finder, founder, is still alive. It started in California with a belief in the whole child and also in being able to provide analysis of an individual's roadblocks and be able to figure out how they can build strategies and use their strengths to overcome their learning differences. Wonderful. I mean, I feel like that it's in such alignment with what intervention specialists do. And I think it's fascinating. You mentioned there's only just over 100 board certified educational therapists in Ohio. Actually, they're, we're the largest practice of ed therapists in Ohio, and there's 24 of us. There's a, approximately 109 board certified educational therapists in the world. Oh, in the world. Yeah. Wow. And it sounds like, too, this you're really tapping into a lot of metacognition and teaching kids how to think about thinking. Oh, absolutely. One of the things when we start with a, a family, uh, we usually start off talking half an hour to the parents. And then what we do is one of the things that we like to explain to them is what we call our big three. And the big three are the executive function areas that we look at. And again, as you mentioned, metacognition, that thinking about thinking, the other way to look at it is the command and control. Or as one of my little kids said, hey, it's getting to learn how to drive your brain, which I loved. <laughs> yeah. So what we, we do is for parents and for the students, and we've, I've also done general presentations for folks, is we talk to them a little bit about that big three and how it impacts people, okay? And the big three are initiation, getting started or restarted if you're stuck. The second one is planning, being able to break something down and sequence it looking forward in time, what's coming up, looking backward in time, hey, how did I do? And do a self-monitoring loop without beating yourself up, which is really important. And then the last one's kind of a combined, you know, organization of time and materials. So those are kind of like our big three that we work on. I feel like these are definitely areas when we talk about in the school setting, kids who have a specific learning disability, so many of them have a diagnosis of ADHD, for example, which impacts the executive functioning. And I always found it really hard. And maybe this was just because part of my area of specialization was reading. But those are definitely the three areas where I would need more thoughtful research on how to devise an individualized goal or objective for kids. And how, you know, and I think where I would get stuck was how do I measure that in a classroom setting? You're talking about the big three? Mm -hmm. One of the ways initiation, you actually measure it already as an intervention specialist. How fast is a person getting started? How many uh, prompts do they need? So initiation would look like two, there's actually two different types, but basically they're stalled out. So if you're in a classroom and you're going, oh, my child, this child's having difficulty on initiation, they're not getting started. Or even more importantly, they're not getting restarted if they're stuck. So right there, you can take a look at how long does it take the child to start compared 
to the rest of the class. Then do they sit there and you can tell that they're not getting it, but they're not, they have no idea what to do next. Or how many prompts does it take for this particular individual? Those are really pretty easily measurable types of things. One thing that's interesting, though, is there's two types of difficulty with initiation. One is kind of neurologically driven that we see with our ADHD and ADD. Also, individuals with, you may see it in individuals with autism or with any other learning difference that's neurologically based. And then the other one is anxiety driven. And they're not quite the same thing, even though they feed into each other and they look a lot the same in the classroom. But we like to give folks different strategies to address the two different types. I think that's really helpful. This is such a different perspective, too, of my background in applied behavior analysis when we're, we're trained to look at is a behavior a function of escape or attention seeking or is it? physiological, it almost seems like, okay, parse that out and then go deeper. Sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference. You know, they're kind of interwoven a little bit. But one of the things I suggest is you can try a couple of strategies and that'll kind of give you an idea. So like, if it's really a neurological one, the the child is just not going to be able to start unless you point out where to start. Okay. Is that making sense? Yeah, totally. So if you're saying, okay, we have this child, but now I'm going to bullet point my directions for them. Okay. I'm going to give them a partially completed graphic organizer. Then if you're seeing them, oh yeah, I'm catching it right away. I'm starting to get, get going. Then you've got an idea that it might be the brain just doesn't know where to start. We like to suggest that teachers provide samples for the child where they can, oh, this is what it's going to look like. And you start right here, color code that start for them. And then sometimes pairing them with a buddy will be helpful as long as the buddy doesn't become their frontal lobe, so to speak. Was this kind of give you a good feel for what a neurological uh, difficulty would look like in the classroom? Yeah, I totally I see this all the time. And I think where where I don't see growth happening, or at least and I'm reflecting back my own experiences was when and how to fade out those prompts. So it's almost like, like you said, the buddy became the frontal lobe or the strategies. We just never had a plan to phase out the strategies so that we were moving closer towards independence? Well, again, it depends. This is where oftentimes we step in and do a specific targeted strategies based on somebody's strengths so that we build them a toolbox that helps them get going. So you're now kind of edging into more into the educational therapy, which is a one-to-one direct instruction and coaching on specific strategies. Because when we have a student, we have them bring their stuff right in to us and we sit down with them and we explain, this is how your brain is working. So this is where you're really good. And here's some techniques so you can figure out how to get started on things. So that goes into their strategy toolbox. Okay. That sounds awesome. And then Do you teach them how to transfer and use those tools in different settings? Absolutely. We actually work, our toolboxes are actually done in the work that the individual has to do. So if you're an elementary student, you bring in your homework. If you're a college student working on a paper, you bring that to us. If you're a medical resident working on some sort of a, of a project, you bring the project in with all the appropriate privacy things dealt with. We work with a wide range of individuals. There's 24 folks in the practice. And we have a very strong feeling that you need to be able to do these strategies in anything that you have to do. 
we also help people do them in life as well. I can't tell you how many Eagle Scout projects we've done over the years, or last summer I did an incentive program with one of my personal students where I helped her figure out how to break down and plan a remodel on her bedroom. Oh, wow. This episode is brought to you by Mindful Literacy Practice. Mindful Literacy Practice is the sister company to Mindful Literacy Columbus. We are a private tutoring and professional development company whose mission is to build a strong learning community that cultivates literacy and mindfulness practices with children, their families, and their teachers. Frequent and consistent tutoring is the key to fluency growth, no matter where your child is on the learning continuum, from special education to gifted education and everywhere in between. All elementary kids need to practice oral reading fluency and math facts. Mindful Literacy Practice offers affordable, high-quality, evidence-based methodology combined with precision teaching data tracking in both reading and math. For just 10 minutes a session, three to five days a week, it is not uncommon for us to see fluency rates double in the course of 10 to 12 weeks. Want to improve the speed in which your child can read and or do math facts? Mindful Literacy Fluency Programs. Improve what you measure. Practice, measure, improve, repeat. Listeners of this podcast can use code FLUENCY50 for their first registration. MindfulLiteracyPractice.org forward slash fluency forward. So these are really high interest topics that there's teeth, they have teeth in the game. <laughs> really? And as I tell our students is, look, you know, once you know how to drive your brain, as my little guy said before, you can do anything you want. If you can lay out a project, you can pay your bills. If you know how to summarize and get information down, you'll be able to do a great presentation to your boss. You can write that thesis. You can finish your PhD. It depends on being able to tell your brain how to do what you want it to do. But this comes into the second um, idea about initiation not getting a thesis started or, or a paper done or our great time-wasting, anxiety-producing procrastination. That's a huge one. One of my students came in the other day. I'm looking and he doesn't typically wear, you know, like university t-shirt kind of things. I thought, well, maybe it was OSU because of the big game or something. And I looked a little closer and it said, the University of Procrastination, our motto is we'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> and that's totally the thing we get from life. It's so easy to get overwhelmed and not being able to get started. But the second part is that that can be aggravated by anxiety. Okay. And anxiety can decrease your processing speed and working memory significantly. I'm sure... Haven't you ever just walked into a test, Jessica, you sat down, oh my gosh, I know this stuff, I'm cool, and you blank. Okay, and you sit there and you go, I know this, I know this, I know this. And then you get up, you walk out the door, you walk down the hall, bling, it's all back, right? And you're going, what happened? Well, what happened was your anxiety dropped. Your processing came back online. And you're so frustrated and angry with yourself. This is another type of thing that our ed therapists help people learn how to manage as well. Specifically based to the individual test-taking strategies to help them keep their processing speed and working memory up. I think that's so relevant. You and I were speaking before we recorded this about math fluency facts. It was wonderful to collaborate with you on that. But then I was thinking, gosh, well, you know, we test kids all the time. I think at one point I had counted up all of the days and weeks in my school year as an intervention specialist that I spent testing kids. And it, it was somewhere like six weeks total in the school year. I mean, fall benchmarks, winter benchmarks, spring benchmarks, progress monitoring, uh, state tests. And so I think about that. Anxiety can decrease processing speed significantly. 
And I certainly know I've had kids where I knew that they had a skill. I knew that they could demonstrate the skill to me multiple times over a long period of time. I saw them demonstrate the skill with different people. And then it was time to take the test, so to speak, or progress monitoring probe or whatever it was. And it was not reflective of what they could actually do. You probably saw the demon of anxiety come in to play. One of the very scary statistics is before the the COVID-19 pandemic, I attended the Learning in the Brain uh, Conference on Anxiety and Learning in San Francisco. It was um, a year ago this past February. And one, I wish I could remember the keynote speaker's name, but one of the keynote speakers mentioned that approximately 30% of school-age children have a diagnosed anxiety disorder. That seems like a lot. And I wonder if that's even everybody. Like, I wonder how many kids have it but haven't been diagnosed. Well, and the thing is, part of the thing is I have kind of a unique perspective since I um, have taught so long and watched the change in the way testing happens because historically um, long ago in a galaxy far away we tested the kids like maybe three or four times through the course of their school year for high stakes tests and even those they were like the uh, California achievement tests or the Terra Nova type of thing and we were we go in, do a little test prep, and then we would just take the test and move on. There was not the stress. There wasn't the anxiety. There wasn't the run-up to the test, and then everybody's worried about the scores. As a matter of fact, we were often instructed to tell the students, this is not about you. This is only for the district to figure out where we place compared to other districts in the U.S., and it's all for the school and it's not for you. And it significantly decreased their anxiety. And taking the test, we took it and moved on. When you figure, what do you have, 180 educational days Yeah. for your school year? If you're taking 60 of those to test, what's happening to the teacher time to be able to reteach or to catch up with those kids that need something a little extra. What I've noticed is over these over the years is as we've tested more and more, the teachers that we talk to as ed therapists, because we collaborate closely with with schools where teachers would like us to is the sense that we have less and less and less time to teach more and more and more and more. And that was even pre-pandemic. Less time to teach more. That sounds pretty accurate. And the question is why? Now, this is my personal opinion, is what I noticed after the No Child Left Behind Act, when the money for the states was more closely tied to measurement, the testing became more intense. Now, don't get me wrong. Absolutely, we need assessments. Absolutely, we have to know where we are. We have to know how we're doing, where we are in comparison to the rest of the world and the benefit of our students so they get a solid quality education. My opinion is we could take some of those testing days and use them for instruction, do fewer tests, and still be able to get good data points. I'm not sure. What's, as a more recent, because I haven't been in the classroom for quite a while, what's your thought of that, Jessica? I think the thing that was always so frustrating about testing was that near impossible to take the data and do something with it. Like I couldn't use the data to inform my instruction on most of the tests. 
Now, as an intervention specialist, I had a leg up because I was doing, you know, curriculum-based measurements. Uh, the benchmarks and progress monitoring allowed me to make informed <laughs> instructional decisions. But otherwise, I think in the gen ed setting, teachers have to have their own formative instructional practices to have any data-driven decision-making. And that comes in the form of they're heavily reliant on the curriculum, the curriculum that they're using. And if that curriculum has built in, you know, pre-test, post-test, progress monitoring, because not all of them are created equal. <laughs> Adds anxiety to the teachers as well as to the to the children. I'm going to loop us back here to the big three again, because when you're talking about, okay, as a classroom teacher, how am I supposed to pre-test, post-test, get the data, change the data, figure out and what do I do for my kids that can't, like, seem to organize anything? One of the big three is planning. And it's really how we sequence information. And this is something that's really kind of interesting as we end up under a lot more stress. Our working memory and processing doesn't work as well. So then what we do is our planning isn't as efficient. Interesting fact for anybody in the classroom who has kiddos who have executive function needs, they literally have no time event horizon. And Dr. Barkley describes this as the ability to look forward in time and then look backward in time. They literally live in the immediate now. And you get this, what? The test is today? Oh, that assignment? It's due when? And one of my students, we were sitting trying to work on a paper. It was one of my, my high school students, which of course was due tomorrow. Okay. And... He looks at me and he says, you know, Julianne, that thing about anybody that's got planning problems because you got executive function stuff and you don't have a sense of time or how to break things down moving forward. And I go, yeah. He said, well, maybe I'm just really zen and in the moment. <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking when you said that. No time event horizon. That's what we're all striving for is to live in the moment. So what's the yeah. good take of it? Oh, what a what a brilliant student. <laughs> yeah. And I, I looked at him, I go, yeah, you're totally on there. And then he looks at me and goes, yeah, but we still got to get this thing done, right? And I go, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, right? You know, I find that even with myself as an adult, you know, juggling and you, you and I were talking like, oh, good thing we're talking about executive functioning today because I could really use some help myself right now is I find the more and more that's piling up on me right? So like my days, you know, 100% stay at home mom, part-time tutor, trying to get this nonprofit off of the ground. I'm like really booked every hour, Monday through Thursday, it's book, 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 book. So when someone is like, you know, my mother-in-law was like, oh, let's do this little Zoom event on the weekend. What time is good for you? I freeze. I'm like, ah, I don't, I just can't. I don't, I have no idea. It's stressing me out to think about my leisure time. <laughs> right now. Can you just tell me what time to be there? No, no. I know you're, you know, I know you're busier than I am. Um, and I'm just like, I cannot, it's, I cannot even think about Saturday because today is Thursday. <laughs> One of the things that's really important. Okay. Is there's a couple things. Let's, let's talk about planning and time are not quite synonymous, but they're tightly interwoven. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. So let's take a look at are ah, kinds of a day. I know as director of Meta, I'm like going, oh yeah, I'm totally on board with that. But let's take a look at some of the things. What what could we do as teachers in our classroom and parents and other other folks is the first thing we want to do is look at scheduling blocks. If you're familiar with the Pomodoro uh, time management system, it says work in 20 to 25 minute blocks and take a three minute movement block and then go back at it. For years, a lot of us have observationally, there's no data, there's no 
exploration yet on it, but we've observationally noticed that there appears to be about a 20 to 25 minute cycle for the brain for attending. Now you can override that, but every time you override it, you become less productive. So years ago, actually one of my master's program long ago in a galaxy far away, I did a project with my current class because I was in the classroom part of the time. And I had one group of students that was on 20-minute Promodoro type, although that's what it wasn't called then. We'd do 20 minutes, we'd take a three-minute break, we'd go right back in another 20-minute block. And I compared time on task with the kids and a number of other factors. And the middle of the project, I was going to swap my, I started out with my afternoon class because they were really noticeable. They were bouncy, a bunch of bouncy kiddos. And then I was going to do my morning biology classes. I had a revolution on my hands. I had to go back to my advisor and go, ethically, I can't do that to my just go straight through and teach with my afternoon classes. And they're rebelling. They want to go back to the 20 minute, which we now call the Promodoro. Because what they found, and surprisingly, I found, I was much less fatigued over by the end of the week, uh, Friday, when I did this. The kids were much more on task. We got much more done. And we gave ourselves a break. We gave ourselves permission to be. And part of that is being able to get up and move. Not long, not enough to get distracted, but just to move. This episode is sponsored by Cats, Pryor, and Decuccio. Cats, Pryor, and Decuccio are experienced Columbus attorneys focusing in real estate, business, and probate law. Find them and schedule a free consultation at kpdfirm.com. I was just going to say, I think it's fascinating that you noticed there was a cumulative effect by the end of the week. Absolutely. One of the things that we tell students is there are two things they're starting to do some scientific work on. Going back to the anxiety, minimizing anxiety, which anxiety also impacts planning by decreasing processing and working memory. The scenario that you were describing with your mother-in-law calling you and going, da, 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 and your brain's going, that's a perfect example of processing speed or, or what one of my kids calls everything falls off the desktop. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I can't do it. But the anxiety, too, will, you know, trigger, slow everything down. So part of the Promodoro is being able to get up and move because movement helps manage anxiety. Also exercise will help. So 45 minutes of exercise will give you an hour and a half of improved concentration, but also we're finding out some of the newest research is indicating that that's cumulative. So your ability to focus, to balance things, to be cognitively flexible, that all will improve with regular exercise and exercise like three or four days in a row will help sustain concentration even into um, five or six or seven days. There's some great new research being done about the use of exercise to help manage depression and to help manage other things that will affect us cognitively. And it's showing that it's definitely a cumulative type of thing. And now you're getting back into talking about the whole child or the whole person, you should say. Mm-hmm. These are skills you teach for your people to have throughout their lives. I think it's great. Give you a quick little tip out on our website is one of my favorite techniques. You can I've got a YouTube out there on there. It's called box breathing. Are you familiar with it? I don't think so. 
every single teacher should teach it to every single kiddo and do it themselves. So box breathing is very simple. You inhale for the count of four, you hold it for the count of four, you exhale for the count of four, and then you hold it for the count of four. And we do it four times. Okay. Yeah, this is a breath work in yoga. Breath work in yoga. But you know what else it also is? What? Tactical combat breathing from the U.S. Navy SEALs. Wow. Okay. Which is really nice when you're talking to adolescent boys that kind of like poo-poo all of the yoga and breathing stuff. <laughs> and I, as I point out to them, one of my um, clinicians is a classroom teacher. She teaches this to all of her students, you know, all of them, and explains that this is first responder breathing. Okay even used by all of, and many first responders use it as well, but it's a way to rapidly relax, bring yourself back into balance and focus. I love it. This is awesome, Julianne. Do you have any other thing, any other things you want to share about the big three before I switch subjects? Um, I think probably we've, we've covered a lot of the, the big three. One of the things that I really want to say is when you're organizing for time, you need to make time visual for a student. Because when things are not visual, oftentimes they fall off of people's desktops and they can become overwhelming. So if you have tasks and time, so for example, classic with our students, they forget a couple of assignments, get behind, get overloaded and shut down. So one of the first things we do is help them visually look at what they have to do. Break the pieces down, lay them out and put them on some sort reminder system. Now, everybody says use the planner. Some people don't like planners. So what we do is have them develop their own system one of my students has a system of colored post-its for different classes, and she has them on a big bulletin board in her room, and she takes pictures of them with her phone. So it doesn't really matter what the system is, as long as it works for the person. And honestly, I think most people do better with a system that they get to pick out or help have input on themselves. It's just so spot on to some of the work I'm doing with some of my high school students. And it really started with, we need to figure out, you know, first, let's put out these fires of your stuff that was due uh, yesterday. And then let's come up with a system so that you can put all these pieces and parts into the system in a way that works for you. And then it was kind of coaching them through on how to use the system and tweaking it. And I, I 100% agree with the visual. And I even think, for me personally, it needs to be tactile. For example, when COVID-19 first came about, I found mm -hmm. uh, even just as a mother managing my own children's distance learning, I had to print off a daily calendar for, you know, and we'd sit down and pre-plan out what we had to get done that day. And then they found great satisfaction in seeing it and holding it and being able to check stuff off. Yes. Right. It is like, you can't ignore a piece of paper lying on your desk at the end of the day. I mean, you can, but if you like to have a clean space, you really can't. But you can definitely miss or ignore something in your, you know, a calendar alert in your phone or a desktop. One of the things that's a really good tip is if you typically blow through alerts on your phone or your desktop, set what we call stacked alerts. And what those are is you set alert five minutes before, two minutes before, and then the time you need to do it. And then that way, it, it was one of my kids said, it's irritating enough that <laughs> I actually decided to do it. <laughs> and maybe even do it five minutes before. Exactly. I did want to add a couple of resources that I think you might find interesting, especially for your young teachers. I'm not sure how often they're actually included in like teaching programs because a lot of our programs are tasks and curriculum based. Does that make sense? Yes. 
But the first one I wanted to share is attachment-based teaching, creating a tribal classroom by Louis Casalino, and ed therapist's work by building a really good coaching rapport with our students and providing them some of the psychoeducational support of that attachment. But Casalino's work with tribes in the classroom is an easy way that a teacher can, even if you're focusing on curriculum, consider some things that will help minimize behaviors, maximize positive behaviors, and just develop a more supportive, comfortable classroom for everybody, okay? The second one is if you're really interested in doing executive function, there is a wonderful book by Lynn Meltzer, M-E-L-T-Z-E-R, and it's called Promoting Executive Function in the Classroom. Lynn has spoken to ed therapists quite a bit. She's one of our favorite people to talk to, and she has lots of tips and techniques to directly assist with making your classroom a more executive function friendly environment. Now, do you think parents would like a couple of resources? Totally. Yeah. I think executive function is one of those things that we need to talk more about, train more about. The more, I feel like the more the better, because I feel like it's one of those things that it's hard for people to define. And I think that, you know, as a parent with young children, because I have the background I do, I, I program in my own kids ways to build up their own executive functioning skills. So Mm -hmm. anything you could share with parents would be fantastic. One of the things that's, that's really good, and I'm sure you're familiar with, it's the book Smart But Scattered by Dawson and Gerard. Yes, I love that book. They also have the Smart But Scattered for Teens, which is a great one. And so one of the books that I always recommend to my parents with adolescents is the book The Teenage Brain by Francis Jensen. And this is some of the newest brain research that kind of tells us, why do they do what they do? (laughs) But it's a very um, easily accessible book. It has a lot of really good information and some good research without being overly technical, okay? Because as one of my parents put it, kids don't come with owner's manuals. We have to kind of figure it out on our own. Other two ones for parents and and two for teachers is Raising Resilient Children and the Power of Resilience by Dr. Robert Brooks. I've heard him speak several times And he has a great website with a lot of really good information on his blog. We have a number of books and YouTubes and resources about executive function on our website for Midwest Educational Therapists and Associates. Make sure to save the day for two fun events in 2021 in partnership with the Final Third Foundation Mindful Literacy Columbus presents 2021 Summer Writing Camp. Kids entering third to seventh grade will have the opportunity to be a part of this investive writing camp. Save the date for this week of August 8th. Email Megan at MindfulLiteracyPractice.org for more information. Make sure to mention that you heard about this camp from the podcast and enter a drawing to win 50% of the camp tuition. First Annual Mindful Literacy Columbus Conference for Kids and Their Grown-Ups. After this conclusion of the writing camp, we will hold a community celebration. This will include kids showcasing their work, art, music, yoga, food, and high-quality professional presentations for both teachers and parents. Teachers will have the opportunity to learn CEUs. The conference, which will be held on Saturday, August 15, 2021, will serve as a fundraiser for a nonprofit organization. 
We will also currently accepting presentation proposals from teachers and professionals in the community. Please email Stacey at stacey.mindfulliteracypractice.org. To receive more information about the conference and or the submit of a presentation proposal. Will you just tell the website? Okay, it's www.metaoh.org. And there's links on the website to our Facebook page where I post a lot of information for parents. And we also have a YouTube channel under Midwest Educational Therapists and Associates. Awesome. Box breathing is out there on that one too. I can't wait to check it out. Okay. So before, thank you for these resources and where to find you. That's awesome. One of the things that I just delighted in the first time I met you was you were telling the story of your first years of teaching and how you got into special education. And I just want you, I just want you to share that story again of how it was during the days of when they invented special education, essentially. Well, Special education uh, started with like, well, there's this thing now that we are going to do that's really going to help kids that we all knew needed help, but didn't have a separate set. So the district looked at me and said, hey, you know, you've been a classroom teacher and so on and so forth. And you always ended up with the kids that were um, kind of difficult to handle. You seem to have a, be okay with them. so." Uh, we'll waiver you in as a special education teacher and you get to go, you know, get some certification here. Okay. Well, I was in a little tiny school district in Minnesota and the nearest place to get certification or do a master's in this newfangled thing of special ed was St. Cloud State. So a group of us, five of us, made the 126-mile round trip once a week to do a master's in what at that time was one of the most innovative programs in the U.S. for special education. Uh, St. Cloud State had some of the first lab schools to work on special education or learning difficulties. So we had an automatic excused absence if it was 20 below actual wind chill we had a class to blizzard you know it was either 20 below actual temperature 20 below wind chill or we were in a class to blizzard it was quite an experience but on the upside we had a rolling fun study table as we took turns carpooling up to St. Cloud and back <laughs> it's efficient studying and i think it's just amazing that you had so much grit you know, it's kind of goes back to your student who pointed out the Zen of it all, but like, okay, I'm on this journey, not really sure where it's going to go, what the, what the end result's going to be, but I'm so glad that you, that you did that because I mean, goodness, what a wealth of resources you have and certainly a leader in our field. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Julianne. You are certainly welcome, and don't hesitate to reach out if I can help. We really feel that, especially in the time of pandemic, we want to help in any way we can. And I certainly encourage people to, you know, email us for questions. And if I can't get back to you directly, I will try to make sure we get something out on Facebook or address people's questions and concerns. Because really, honestly, we are the people that create the future. Teachers are the ones that make the difference in lives. Our effective use of all of our resources really are the ones that frame the hope, the joy, the continued success of all of us. And it's so necessary now that we all understand, despite all the stress, we are 
the future. I love it. I think it was beautifully said. And I'm, you know, teared up over here as usual on these podcasts. And I so appreciate your wisdom on all of that. Thank you so much. You are certainly welcome. And it was lovely. And you have a great, take a deep breath, enjoy (laughs) your kids, the day and the world. Thank you so much, Julia. And take care. You too. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Mindful Literacy Podcast. May you be inspired, energized, and share this love with those in your care. We are also grateful to have you as a part of our community. If you are enjoying the content in this podcast, please share this with your friends and colleagues. Subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Please also take a moment to connect with us on Facebook, mindful.literacy.columbus, and on Instagram, mindful.literacy.cbus. We want to hear from you. What topics do you want to uncover next? Who is doing these amazing things on the field of education that we should be talking about in season three? Until next time, may you be happy, healthy, and at peace. Before we wrap things up, we want to mention one more way from anywhere in the world that you and your students can get involved with Mindful Literacy Columbus. For just $25 a month, you can become a patron member of Mindful Literacy Columbus. Yes, that's right. For less than the cost of a latte a week, you will become a champion for child literacy and you have the opportunity to give directly back to kids in two ways. First, dues enable staff to grant right, fundraise, and build organizational awareness. Second, patron members are invited to contribute monthly to our publishing house, Beehive Press. The books that your students will curate will then be sold to generate even more scholarship money for your students. Beehive Press is an imprint of Mindful Literacy Columbus. Here is what patron members will get for their $25 per month. Submit one book by Kids for Kids for Beehive Press per month. Receive video lesson plans on how to engage kids in the writing process and PDF graphic organizers to help with the pre-writing process. Includes help with book layout, one-to-one final editing session, marketing, sales, and logistics of the book. Receive the proof of the book for free. Includes copyright and ISBN number. Each published book that is sold gives back to MLC. 50% goes to scholarships, 50% goes to authors. To become a patron member, go to mindfulliteracypractice.org slash donate.